0: Greetings. This is Volts for February 10th, 2023. Utilities are lobbying against the public interest. Here's how to stop it. I'm your host, David Roberts. There are many features of U.S. public life that I believe, perhaps naively, would be the subject of a great deal more anger were they better understood. One of those is the role utilities play in climate policy. A rapid transition to a low-carbon energy system is necessary to avoid the worst of climate change. Happily, that transition is going to be an enormous net benefit to U.S. public health and the U.S. economy. It's good for quality of life, economic growth, international competitiveness, national security, and the long-term inhabitability of the planet. But it's not necessarily good for the companies that actually sell energy to customers – power and gas utilities. In fact, utilities are using every tool at their disposal to slow the energy transition from lobbying to PR campaigns to donations to, as the last few years have demonstrated, outright bribery. And here's the even more galling bit. They are fighting against the clean energy transition using your money. They use ratepayer money, from captive customers over whom they are granted a monopoly to fund their lobbying. They have effectively conscripted their customers, who have no choice where to get their power and gas, into an involuntary small donor army working against the public interest. It's outrageous. In a new report called Getting Politics Out of Utility Bills, the Energy and Policy Institute, one of the best utility watchdogs out there, details some of these utility corruption and offers recommendations for how to prevent it. These are not futile recommendations to Congress, but actions that fall within the current powers of state regulators and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. I have been ranting about utilities for years, and one of my most reliable sources on the subject has always been the report's author, Energy and Policy Institute Executive Director David Pomerantz. So I was eager to talk to him to air some shared grievances, hear some enraging tales of utility shenanigans, and discuss what can be done to rein them in. All righty then, David Pomerantz, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I was thinking of you just earlier today as I saw a a new story in the Washington Post about how the gas industry is under fire and it is now hiring Democratic politicians to shill for it. And I thought, golly, isn't that thematically on point? So uh, it seems like a perfect time to be (laughs) covering this report. Before we get into specifics of who's done what and how to stop them from doing it, let's just start with power utilities are out there getting involved in politics. And let's just sort of discuss what is their net effect on politics? Like, What are they pushing for and against out there in the states and at the federal level?
1: That is a great question. And I think it will be important context for your listeners who I am count myself as a loyal one. And I know many are thinking about climate change and energy policy and decarbonization and the energy transition and if they're concerned about those things then they should be concerned about utilities political power and their political machines so let's talk about what their political agenda is and we're talking about both electric and gas utilities oftentimes the same companies but sometimes you know there there are utilities that sell gas only and electricity only and they're all relevant to this conversation. So since you mentioned gas utilities pushing back against building electrification, and that has certainly been in the news quite a lot this month. So we can start there because that's really simple. The gas utility sector is, with almost no exceptions, united in its aggressive political effort to stave off building electrification. They basically see that as a an existential threat to their existence um, they have for some time and it is let's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we can be honest about that, I think yeah we'll talk about electric utilities, of course, you know, electric utilities have not only a role to play in decarbonized world and a transition from fossil fuels, but really like the very central role to play in it, and I wish they would more of them would get religion on that, um, but gas utilities don't really their role is to they make money from putting methane gas in pipes and sending it to buildings and factories. Yeah,
0: these these companies that are both, you can sort of see a route out of this for them. But a, an exclusively gas utility really is, you know, destined for the trash bin of history and knows it yeah. and, and is fighting it tooth and nail. But like some of the stuff, util- like electric utilities are fighting, I don't think is as straightforward or obvious. Why? Like they seem hostile to both – distributed renewables, you know, sort of consumer side stuff and hostile to interregional transmission of the big power. So they seem hostile yeah. on sort of both ends of of that. And so w- w- why are they out doing that and how significant is their opposition to this stuff in the grand scheme of things?
1: Yeah, it's significant. It depends a bit on the issue. So maybe let's start on one end of the spectrum with the things that they are Most opposed to with the least nuance. (laughs) Right. And I would say that that is uh, distributed resources, customer-owned resources like rooftop solar and energy efficiency, you know, which we maybe don't talk about as much as we should. But for decades now, electric utilities have opposed those because it presents a threat to their business model, right? As you, you have kind of like and the high priest of helping people to understand this, (laughs) electric utilities in our current model make money when they build stuff. If people are putting solar panels on their roof or adopting technologies to use less electricity, either one of those kind of has the same effect on the electric utility. It means they don't have to build as much stuff, and so they make less money.
0: Yes, you're using less utility power. Right. So they
1: are opposed to that. Um, And we'll talk about some of the most scandalous things that utilities electric utilities have used their political machines to do in the last few years, but a lot of it roots from this almost paranoid obsession with stopping the growth of rooftop solar in some places. Um, So that's that. On the other end of the system, in terms of like the bulk power system, it's a little bit less monolithic and a little bit more of a spectrum within the industry. Mm. So there are absolutely electric utilities who have figured out that they can make money by retiring coal plants and gas plants and instead building wind farms and utility scale solar farms. So Excel energy kind of coined the term steel for fuel to represent that change. And it makes sense. Now they're all kind of in a different place on that. Some some have really embraced that transition. Some of the dinosaurs in the industry, like Southern Company or Duke Energy or Energy, they're not there yet for a bunch of reasons that I think are. Largely cultural, frankly, they just have a lot of groupthink in their leadership and the, in their C suites, and they haven't figured out yet that that solution sort of helps their profits and also helps customers. It's really you know good for everyone. And so on that, th- there's some heterogeneity in this in the whole sector. But there are companies who, utility companies who absolutely in in the very recent past have used their Political power to slow down that transition too so probably the canon example of that and we can I think we should talk more about this because it's really a, such an important case study is first energy
0: in Ohio so yeah we we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely get into that sure and the transmission thing too I think is maybe not intuitive for people just to understand that sort of if your power generation and transmission is confined to your utility area yeah. Right. You're sort of stuck with the resources you have within that area. And insofar as you connect to other areas and potentially get cheaper power, right, you lower the price of power generally and utilities, uh, especially the owners of those plants that are getting those sky high prices don't want that either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is really counterintuitive for people. And I think, you know, unfortunately, this narrative has kind of taken over that, like the main obstacle to building, the High voltage regional transmission lines that we desperately need for to transition from fossil fuels to renewables is like some farmers and ranchers and NIMBY, sort of not in my backyard protesters,
0: yes, or or environmentalists wielding environmental review, etc., and protecting salamanders, right?
1: And you know, the I'm not dismissing those things as real, there are people, you know, there is a history of landowners not wanting transmission lines going on or near their property. But in my opinion, far less of a barrier and gets much more attention than it should compared to this really big structural barrier, which is these multi-billion dollar companies that don't want to see transmission built, regional transmission. And that regional part is kind of the key when it comes to utilities. So You know, utilities are very happy to build local transmission. Yeah, In fact, they're probably gold plating their local transmission assets because they can get it approved very quickly.
0: Yeah, super easy to get it greenlit.
1: Super easy. And uh, it's a money making machine for them. The regional transmission assets, uh, first of all, as with anything, they'll fight the opportunity for anybody to own those assets but them. So, you know, they will fight against any kind of merchant development of transmission, which takes a big piece of the market out that could make things cheaper for everybody. And yeah, they'll fight against transmission lines that weaken their assets. So a a good example of how this stuff all interacts is um, there was a proposed transmission line to bring clean hydropower from Quebec into New England. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it was fought by local activists, but also NextEra Energy Paid twenty million dollars to bankroll very quietly some of those protests and to campaign against the transmission line because they own gas plants and and a nuclear plant in the region and so that imported hydro would have undercut the profitability of those assets. Um, there's another case that we documented on our on our website about how Entergy, a utility company that operates in Louisiana and in the South. They actually hired a, sort of an undercover operative, like a consultant that didn't disclose they were working for Entergy, to go to some of the meetings of MISO, the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, and basically kind of try to gunk up the works and slow down development of transmission lines that would bring, you know, lower cost wind energy into energy's service territory. So. They fight that too. They they fight distributed resources. They fight competitive regional transmission,
0: and they fight they fight the creation of new competitive electricity markets too.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. So we have competitive wholesale electricity markets in many parts of the country. The ones we have could use some reforms to make them yeah. work better for customers. So utilities certainly will fight those, um, but there are also places where we don't have any, and the biggest one is the southeast. Yeah, And the utilities there, companies like Duke Energy, Dominion Energy, Southern Company, they are very aggressively using their political power, including like, you know, paying groups with names like Power for Tomorrow that pay former regulators to do some of this stuff mm-hmm. to argue against bringing an RTO to the southeast, which many legislators in some of those states have expressed an interest in from both parties because they want to see cheaper electricity Large customers want to see it because many of them want want to have better access to clean energy, and a regional transmission operator would help with that. Um, and the utilities are fighting that too. So it's really kind of up and down the system. A lot of solutions to to decarbonization, you know, building electrification when it comes to gas utilities, certainly rooftop solar and energy efficiency, and in some cases shuttering fossil fuel assets, regional transmission. All of those are things we need, and all of those are things that in various parts of the country. One of the biggest reasons we're not getting those things fast enough is because utilities are are blocking them.
0: This is one of the this genre of podcast I think of as the you should be matter uh pod. Yeah. <laughs> and and people really should be madder about this. So it's kind of wild. So anything that sort of like brings cheaper power and decarbonization and customer empowerment, like all these things that are good socially and environmentally and economically and politically, like name it. Everybody wants all these things except for the companies that control electricity, which are out fighting them, which is just really wild. You know, like any widget maker is going to go politically lobby against a ban on widgets. You know what I mean? Like people sure. like companies have in our collective wisdom, we have decided that corporations are people and have the right of free speech and have the right to defend their interests and, you know, whatever the propriety of that, it's a real thing, but cannot make the point enough that utilities are not just another company. They're not just another private enterprise. So, so give us that context too, as well. Why it's like, it's bad enough that the companies that control electricity are out comprehensively opposing better, cleaner, cheaper electricity, but these are not just normal companies, like these are um monopolies.
1: Yeah, they're they're basically state granted monopolies. And that is a really important distinction. That's kind of everything. So, you know, if you don't like the political position of some company that you buy you know some consumer product from like if you don't like the political position of a fast food company you can buy your hamburgers from some other fast food company
0: so you don't like the behavior of, of a certain tesla executive precisely you can you
1: can buy an ev from some other car company it's getting easier than ever but if you don't like the political positions of your utility first of all you have no recourse but you have to buy electricity in some cases you have to buy gas like for the time being, at least. And so, first of all, it's interesting, you you mentioned how in our collective wisdom, or at least the collective wisdom of the Supreme Court, you know, we've basically created kind of like an anything goes campaign finance environment. And that's meant to, you know, if you believe it, if you, you give credence to the logic behind those court decisions, like Citizens United, it's meant to protect The free speech rights of corporations. I I disagree entirely with the construct, (laughs) but that's the construct. Yeah. What about the free speech rights of utility customers? Right. Like if I, if my utility is taking my money and spending it to sue the EPA so that they can poison my air and water with impunity, (laughs) that's political speech, you know, and I'm basically being conscripted unwillingly into an army of small dollar donors by my utility to fund that political speech. So there's case law about this. Uh, I'm not an attorney, but um, my first amendment rights are being violated basically by compelling my speech. So that's one whole set
0: of problems. Let's just emphasize this real quick because I, I don't know that we ever stated it clearly, but it is important for people to know that not just that your utility is out lobbying against your interests, And it's not just that you are a captive customer of that company and cannot get away from it, even if you disagree with its positions. It is also the case that the money you are being forced to give the company is being used for that lobbying. So you're not just an irritated bystander. You're literally paying for the companies to do this through bills that you have no choice but to pay. Which just seems like as straightforwardly, I mean, it's a little wild to me that there hasn't been lawsuits about this. You know, it's a little crazy that we allow utilities to do this in the first place. I don't know like what the positive argument is for allowing utilities to conscript their customers into being dirty energy lobbyists. It's just,
1: are there not lawsuits? There have been some challenges we're starting to see more of them. Um, I think... Like a lot of issues, this one kind of only rears its head and becomes salient when a lot of people start to talk about it. Um, Utility, political influence, and regulatory capture kind of thrives in the shadows. And like that's sort of the default resting state almost. It's like (laughs) if people don't talk about it, it's just kind of like, grows and grows like fungus in the
0: dark well it's kind of true of electricity generally it's true you're like utilities generally like you don't have to pay attention to that stuff so
1: interestingly and this is a parallel to something you you just talked about with sage welch on your show about gas stoves there was more attention to some of these issues like in the early 80s Mm. um, when there was a lot of skepticism and and sort of public outrage about utilities for a lot of reasons is you know electricity was expensive it's coming off the back of Three Mile Island. And for a brief period, electric utilities were sort of treated more skeptically in terms of their political operations. And so that's happened at other times in our history too. Um, actually, right after the stock market crash and the Great Depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s, which utilities had a big role in, there at that time was a massive degree of concern about the political power of investor owned utilities. A lot of that manifested at the time in this very big struggle between a much larger question of how we would serve electricity to the country, would it be investor-owned utilities or public power, which right. the, you had FDR sort of pushing for public power. So there's a detour, but a long way of saying there have been periods in our history where people do pay attention to utilities, political power, and there is a lot of outrage over it, and, and there tends to be legal action and legislation proposed and sometimes passed and regulation. But outside of those moments, it all kind of thrives in a lack of attention. My hope is that we are we are entering one of those cycles now for a bunch of reasons. You would think, right?
0: Because <laughs> yes. like decarbonization, like existential threat, blah, 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 decarb by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Like this is here now and imperative. Yeah,
1: now's the time for it. And one, one other thing I would just say quickly about that is even if your utility is doing some good things, even if your electric utility has gotten the memo that it needs to decarbonize uh, you know maybe it 's still fighting rooftop solar on the side, but at least it's switching from you know it's retiring its coal plants rapidly and right. switching to renewables, which some are this corruption and, and political spending that they do, particularly what they 're doing with ratepayer money and what they're doing that often breaks the law that 's really bad when it happens by the sort of quote unquote better utilities also, right? Because you have, you know, a bunch of opponents to the clean energy transition, like fossil fuel companies and, you know, hardcore conservatives who don't believe in climate change, et cetera, or say they don't, they are all like looking for a reason in very bad faith to criticize the whole thing. So if you have a utility who is investing in a lot of wind, but they're doing it via political corruption, Yeah, <laughs> that also presents a huge backlash risk. So it's, it's kind of bad in all its forms. And as you said, the worst part is that we're being made to fund it.
0: Yeah, I know. I think you could just say, and I think maybe you'd probably agree with this, it's just, it's ludicrous on its face that publicly granted monopolies who are providing an essential service that people cannot go without are allowed to politically lobby at all like it's just like yes it's so familiar i think we don't think about it but it's just ludicrous that it's allowed at all like it ought to just be unthinkable these should be technocratic nerds who follow <laughs> instructions and that's Completely. It. Like, we don't i mean you know just as
1: a as one small example of this to put a fine point on it you have all these like sports stadiums and concert venues around the country that are named like First Energy Stadium or the Dominion Performing Arts Center. And once you see this stuff, I mean, once you sort of see the elements of the, the utilities political machine, once you know to look for it, you see it everywhere. It's like they're sponsoring every nonprofit. They're naming every venue after themselves. And part of what I think is so funny about that is like, Why does a monopoly actually need to advertise? Exactly, they're not competing. They're not not going to lose customers, right? I mean, by definition, (laughs) right? What does what does name recognition do for them?
0: Yeah, you can't leave them. Exactly. Why do they need to have PR departments at all? Other, uh, you know, customer service departments. Yes, PR. Why? Like it is. It is crazy.
1: It absolutely is, And, and. That's a great juxtaposition because most of them have pretty poor customer service (laughs) and (laughs) massive PR departments. And that's where, (laughs) you know, it can be hard to quantify and measure the full breadth of their political machine. But that is something we try to do at the Energy and Policy Institute. And when you look at it, they are among the biggest spenders in their states on everything, right? They're always among the top campaign contributors. Mm. They're among the top lobbying spenders. Their trade associations are among the best funded and wealthiest in Washington, D.C., where they do all their lobbying. And it comes back to that ratepayer question, right? In a perfect world, I think everyone would agree intuitively with what you just said, David, like, why should they be allowed to practice almost any kind of politics at all, right? They're,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're given this incredible privilege of getting a guaranteed profit margin and a monopoly, they should be essentially beholden to the will of our democratically elected officials, not trying to shape it. But at the, at a minimum, at a bare minimum, what we should do is make sure we get into some controls to make sure that they're not allowed to supercharge and turbocharge that political machine using their customers' money, right? That they're not allowed to hack off a few dollars out of your monthly bill every month and use it to pay for their public relations consultants, et cetera. And that week, that is a relatively simple problem to solve with reform. So that's what we're trying to lay out, how that can be done in this new report that we wrote.
0: Before we get to those specific reforms and kind of the specific channels of utility influence and how they might or might not be blocked with reforms, let's just take a brief detour for some storytelling. Because I think when people hear, you know, like the lobbying is technically legal Mm-hmm. as absurd as it is for it to be legal but people should not take from that the impression that utilities are lobbying within legal bounds here the fact that they are allowed to do this allowed to use customer money to do it is practically an open invitation to corruption and low they have answered the invitation so let's just let's talk about a few of the kind of higher profile examples that have come up in recent years because i think people again like unless you really hear it put out plainly it really boggles the mind it beggars the imagination like what they're doing is worse than than anyone thinks so let's start with ohio i wrote a whole long thing about this and it was god what a rabbit hole like every twist and turn you go it's just nastier and nastier but tell us what they what went down in ohio
1: for sure Um, This is a great time to talk about it. So last week, criminal trial started for the former Speaker of the House of Ohio, a guy named Larry Householder. He is being charged uh, with accepting bribes and being part of a racketeering scheme. And here's what happened. So there's a large uh, electric utility company based in Ohio called First Energy. First Energy, for years, had been trying to um, collect bailouts for some nuclear plants and also for its some of its coal plants that were struggling to make any money. They had tried with the Trump administration. They tried with previous Ohio state governments, but they kept coming up empty. Um, and they found their guy in Larry Householder. Um, <laughs> so what Larry Householder is accused of, and, and what I should note, this is very important since they're technically allegations for Householder until he's proven guilty. If he is, uh, but for First Energy, that's not the case. They admitted to everything I'm about to say in what's called a deferred prosecution agreement with the federal government to avoid going on trial. So they paid a $230 million and it admitted guilt to all the following. They routed $60 million through different dark money organizations. So technically, these are 501c4 nonprofit groups that do not have to disclose their donors. And First Energy mm. did not have to disclose giving them money. So it's kind of untraceable money that was then passed to uh, Larry Householder. He used some of that just for his own personal use, which is what the, is at the center of some of the bribery charges. So he like used it to pay down a home of his, and he used it to pay for his defense in a lawsuit. But most of the money went to his political machine. So in 2018, most of that money went to elect a slate of Republicans in Republican primaries that year in Ohio that had sort of pledged their loyalty to Householder. Um, they were actually in all these text messages that have come out through the, the legal process. They're referred to as the, the team Householder candidates. And through the political power that Householder gained through the election of a lot of those folks, he was able to win kind of an internal Republican struggle to become the Speaker of the House. And in exchange... His payback to First Energy was to pass a law called House Bill 6, uh, which passed. It was signed by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. It offered over a billion dollars in subsidies to First Energy's coal plants and nuclear plants. Did some other things that don't get as much attention but are pretty important. Kind of did this fake decoupling scheme where some of your listeners would probably know. But decoupling is a policy where if a utility adopts energy efficiency measures, so p- its customers use electricity, they can be made whole from that. This was like one reporter in Ohio, Kathy Ann Kowalski, described it as the spoonful of sugar without the medicine. So basically, it was like <laughs> if Ohioans used electricity absent the energy efficiency investments, First Energy would still get all that money back. Um, and that's ended up being what happened through the, the COVID pandemic. So it was billions of dollars in handouts and bailouts to First Energy. That's not even all of it. They also have and First Energy has admitted to this. They also paid over the last 10 years over $20 million to a guy named Sam Randazzo. $4 million of that came a couple of years ago, just before he was appointed as First Energy's top regulator on the Ohio, the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. (laughs) Um, And they they have basically conceded, First Energy has conceded that that last $4 million payment at least was to influence his behavior as their regulator. And he was a, a big driving force behind passing HB6. That's
0: not a small amount of money for a dude, for for an individual dude. These are not small uh, bribes.
1: No, there are lots of money. And in this case, we don't always know as this money sort of works its way through the utility accounting machine, like where it originally came from. In this case, we know, thanks to some audits and some good uh, investigative reporting by folks in, in various states and some people on my team, that this was ratepayer money, at least some of it was, um, went into this bribery scheme. And amazingly, not even just from Ohio ratepayers. So at this point, it seems certain that First Energy also took money from ratepayers of its subsidiaries in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and West Virginia and Maryland. (laughs) And all of that money kind of got hoovered into this machine and and ultimately came out the other side, went to these politicians in exchange for these laws. Amazing.
0: If there's one thing that could be more irritating than your ratepayer money being forced to lobby your state politicians, it's, it's having your ratepayer money be used. Some other state politicians. For corruption in some other state, you don't even get the benefits of the corruption. So yeah, so this was, you know, like, I, I think a lot of listeners probably were aware of this or followed this or, or read my piece about it a few years ago or a million other pieces. Like, it was really just to sort of put a pin in it this is not one of these things where like lines were pushed or like it's impropriety this is very straightforward bribery and corruption it's almost like charmingly old school in a way like this like checks being handed over
1: (laughs) sometimes there you know there are gray areas and blurry lines but not on this one and another another david david anderson is one of my colleagues who's kind of led our investigative work on first energy he said something the other day that like it's wrong for utilities to spend their ratepayer money on lobbying and politics they're not supposed to do that they're supposed to spend shareholder money on that which we can talk more about but they're not supposed to spend anyone's money on bribes like that's just straight up illegal <laughs> yeah. and that's that's what happened uh with first energy in ohio
0: yeah and, you know they're um A bunch of examples in your report, and we could go through this all day, but I don't want to waste too much time. But just one other one, which I thought was also telling, is is in Florida, which also involved a lot of, um, you know, a lot of very sort of straightforward interventions in the political system to get friendly Republicans. Yeah. (laughs) Elected
1: so in florida uh case we're talking about a utility called florida power and light also in the news lately because their ceo is a guy named eric Solaji who just unexpectedly announced his early retirement
0: um oh probably nothing it's probably fine probably (laughs) nothing going on there yeah
1: nothing to do with anything (laughs) i'm about to say so unlike first energy uh florida power and light disputes a lot of this but it's been reported out and it's pretty airtight so and they've kind of like been dishonest throughout the process, so I'd take pretty much anything they say with the biggest grain of salt you can find. What what FBL is accused of having done is they were paying some, again, their political consultants, and these consultants then routed money. Again, you you see a a common theme here to these dark money 501c4 groups that they basically created for these purposes. And then what those groups did was bankroll unaffiliated independent candidates for state legislative elections who were designed to siphon votes away from candidates disfavored by the utility. In every case, happen to be Democrats, not surprisingly.
0: So spoiler candidates,
1: spoiler candidates. And and in Florida, this has been referred to as the ghost candidate scandal, because these people, (laughs) it's not like, oh, you know, we're going to run, we're going to fund a Green Party candidate because we think that'll you know take votes away from a Democrat, but it's like a real person who really wants to hold the office and for better or worse, is running. These are people who like didn't do any kind of campaigning uh they were candidates only on paper in in at least one case. the main attribute of the candidate was it that they had the same last name as the Democrat, which is useful if you're trying to <laughs> siphon votes away um. And it's pretty clear why they were doing this. Uh, that CEO who's resigning, that I just mentioned, Eric Salagi, he said in an email to two other FPL executives, writing about one of the targets of this ghost candidate scandal, a guy named Jose Javier Rodriguez, a Democratic senator in Florida, he said, I want you to make his life a living hell to two other FPL executives. And it worked. He, that senator went on to lose reelection by 34 votes. So, you know, in these state races that can have really close margins, this utility money has an effect. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. FPL also, the same network of consultants and dark money groups and shady characters, they paid to have private investigators follow a newspaper columnist that had been critical of the utility. They paid for a network of these kind of fake news sites designed to spread utility propaganda. My goodness. They were trying to buy out a municipal utility in Jacksonville. And allegedly, these consultants paid by FPL created a nonprofit to advocate for marijuana legalization and then offered one of the city councillors who was most opposed to this FPL buyout. They offered him like a very high-paid job with the fake nonprofit they just created. So it's really like a whole (laughs) massive
0: (laughs) political machine. Pretty fucking devious, though. It's
1: diabolical, man.
0: I guess if you're just getting millions of dollars to sit around in a room and think of fuckery, you know.
1: And that's literally what they do. I mean, in that sense, like other companies, this gets back to the monopoly business model issue, like other companies, their incentives as a business are to like keep costs low, make better stuff, keep customers happy, right. you know, grow revenues, whatever. All of the utilities' profit is determined by the regulatory system, like by their public utility commissions or appointed by governors and, and nominated by legislators, et cetera. So their biggest incentive is to game all that. Right. So that becomes the focus of the company. I mean, anything they can do. And, you know, I think some leaders of some of these companies have maybe – Better ethical systems than others, but the the incentives structure is for them to do anything possible short of getting caught by law enforcement officials <laughs> um, to game the system in their in their favor. And so we we don't need to go through all the examples; it could be ours, But it's not just red states; not just Florida and Ohio. Um, you know, Comed in Illinois. They got busted by the Department of Justice and paid a $200 million fine for a patronage scheme with the Speaker of that house. Um, this has happened really all over the country. And I think people hear the first energy story in Ohio and think, oh, my God, well, that's got to be the bad apple. And I'm not sure that's true. I think they're the ones who were the most egregious and got caught the worst. But it, if it's a difference, if it's, it's, it's maybe a difference of degree, but not of type. Right. Most utilities are engaged in some version of this
0: behavior. Just to reiterate again, this behavior is not just lobbying. There's weird trade groups. There's dark money groups. There's weird public relations campaigns that are not traceable back to <laughs> the utilities. There's advertising. There's It's like a full – it's really a full spectrum of fuckery going on, all of which seems sort of inevitable uh, based on the structural incentives. You know, I always – I mean, I'm sure these are a lot of scummy people involved, but if you just like, if you set things up this way and make it legal for them to do this, of course, they're going to do this. So one, one other question before we get to solutions is just insofar as these things get caught, are the punishments or the threat of punishment enough to deter future examples of this? Like what is, does anyone get strung up as an example or, you know, how far behind are lawmakers on, uh, on this?
1: Very, very far behind. Um, unfortunately. (laughs) This is actually one of the main solution sets is around deterrence and enforcement. Um, But that's really a missing piece of the puzzle. And I'll I'll give you an example of how broken this is. Um, In Ohio, let's look at what's happened to First Energy. Now, the biggest penalty they've probably actually had to pay is with investor sentiment, right? Like shareholders in the company are a little bit skittish. And certainly their stock dropped after the scandal, after this um, CEO of Florida Power & Light just announced his, his unexpected retirement next era the parent company. Their stock dropped by about 8% that day. They may recover some of that um, or all of it. But you know they do have some price to pay on Wall Street because investors, I think, the sort of unspoken secret among utility investors is they see regulatory capture and utility political power as a good thing right up until the point they get caught Um, for them. It's like, yeah, of course we want you to control the political environment. We want you to have the euphemism is like good relationships with your regulators, but they don't, I think they kind of are happy to hear and see no evil in terms of how that happens, but they certainly don't like when it leads to, you know, like FBI raids and department of justice investigations. So there is a price they have to pay there, but the bigger price ought to come from the political system, and that has not happened. So just taking a look at First Energy, a rational response to what they did in Ohio, which was essentially a full-scale takeover, a full-scale purchase, essentially, of the legislature that's supposed to be democratically elected, I think a rational, proportional response that would have been at least exploring the idea that First Energy should should lose its charter to operate like should lose its monopoly find another utility that can provide those services to Ohioans, because i would argue first energy has lost the right to be
0: considered for that that would to me be a rational response it's hard to think of what would justify that if not this like i agree (laughs) what could what would be worse i mean totally
1: and you know No one with power has proposed that. I mean, people like me talk about it all the time, but no one (laughs) in power to do it in Ohio has proposed that. Instead, what we've seen is really a complete abdication. First of all, they haven't even fully addressed the law that was passed via these corrupt means. So the nuclear subsidies were rolled back from HB6, but not the coal subsidies. Those are still rolling. That law, I didn't even mention it before, but that law also stripped the very meager sort of renewable incentives or renewable performance standards in Ohio. I remember. That hasn't been returned. So they didn't even address kind of the law that was bought with it. But in terms of consequences, there's been almost nothing. Um, The Public Utility Commission of Ohio, they say that they have some ongoing audits and investigations of First Energy. Those are on hold until the criminal investigations are over. We'll see what comes of that. If anything, Interestingly, they did have to pay this two hundred thirty million dollar payment to the Department of Justice to avoid prosecution. But we should just put that in perspective: the company made eleven billion dollars in revenue in twenty twenty one. Two hundred thirty million dollars is is significant, but it's you know it's less than the ill gotten gains they got from HB six. I mean, that was billions in subsidies. Way less, <laughs> you know. Just as one indicator of how broken our enforcement machine is on this stuff. Interestingly, before the HB6 news exploded, like before there were indictments and and criminal charges, FERC, Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission, they had just started an audit of First Energy's accounting practices. And not surprisingly, in that audit, First Energy did not (laughs) disclose to FERC the portions of the Excel spreadsheet that showed the bribe payments. They sort of left that (laughs) out. So just a few uh, weeks ago, actually FERC announced that it was, it was fining first energy for violating its duty of candor obligation with the commission, because you know, when you're audited, you're supposed to provide all those documents. and right. They didn't tell auditors about $90 million in lobbying expenses, 70 million of which were, you know, sort of dark money payments involved in that bribery scheme for that violation. They find first energy $3.9 million. Oh
0: my God. You know,
1: and they said, well, this is kind of a fair and equitable fine based on our practices.
0: But that's $4 million. A householder got more than that, personally, in Absolutely. bribes. Never mind the rest of it. It's a $4 million penalty for
1: lying about $90 million, much of it spent on a corruption scheme that netted billions for the company. So, you know, to call it a slap on the wrist is kind of an insult to slap on the wrist. Um <laughs> And, you know, the way regulators treat this right now, it's interesting. Public utility commissions and FERC actually have a lot of statutory power to fine utilities. That is like a key component of what it means to be a utility regulator is that if you want to, you can penalize them. FERC has authority to fine violations that, you know, utilities commit in its jurisdiction up to a million dollars a day for every day that they're in violation. Mm. But they almost... Never use this authority. I I mean, occasionally FERC will use it in in cases of really, really egregious market manipulation. But on this stuff, on like lying or, or sort of quote unquote mistakenly charging customers for political expenses, that's almost never fined. Very, very rare cases and the fines are very small. And, you know, when they do catch it, what they say is like, okay, well, you got to refund the money to ratepayers. But that's sort of like telling somebody who robbed a bank. You know, if a cop caught a bank robber mid act and said, "Oh, you know what? Just put the money back in the vault, and um, we'll call it a day." That's basically <laughs> the way regulators treat this kind of misbehavior. So there's there's almost no deterrent.
0: Which is to say, even from the perspective of today, what First Energy did was perfectly rational and business positive. And if I were a First Energy investor, you know, I'd be like uh nice work <laughs> like like do it again there's no reason not to do it again they they get so much more out of this than anyone penalizes them for even if they are caught so you know in terms of like maximizing shareholder returns it just seems like perfectly rational behavior on their part
1: and they're the ones who got caught which is the minority <laughs> i think you know obviously right. we don't know what we don't know right but you know first energy at least had to suffer some consequences like They've gone through two CE- They fired the CEO who was responsible for much of this, and the next CEO didn't hold his job terribly long. They've
0: had some board turnover. Like, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure those guys are suffering, David. I'm sure they're. <laughs> I'm sure they're on the soup line now. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're regretting a great their point. choices.
1: It's a great point. But you know, to the extent they've had any consequences at all, it's only because they got caught, and you know, other utilities are not, or they're caught doing things that are deemed to be just on the right side of legal. So as an example, Michigan Utilities has not gotten as much attention because there haven't been criminal charges, but they've spent tens of millions of dollars on dark money uh, operations to control the political environment in their state and even in others. I mean, DTE Energy is a Detroit-based energy company. They own some biomass plants in California as, as part of their unregulated part of their company. And they routed money through a dark money group, which ultimately ended at a national laboratory, which put out a report talking about how you know those those biomass plants uh, would be great candidates for carbon capture and sequestration, which which is <laughs> what, what DDE is trying to do. So, you know, none of that has been prosecuted. None of it's been caught. You know, we've tried to expose some of it. Sammy Roth at the LA Times wrote a great story about that scheme. And and I should say, by the way, just quickly as an aside. There are reporters around the country who are working tirelessly to expose this kind of corruption, too many for me to name individually, but they're really doing an incredible service to not just energy customers, but like the democratic institutions that these utilities are undermining. But your central premise is right. Just, you know, a newspaper article or two. And even when there have been criminal prosecutions, the consequences are too low to deter utilities from doing this and part of the reason we know that's true is because they keep doing it
0: yeah yeah proof in the pudding so with our time remaining then uh having you know griped about <laughs> this which is deeply gratifying to me as i've been you know <laughs> as you know griping about this for uh, many 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 years now let's talk about what can be done obviously you know in uh sane world, in a country with a operational (laughs) federal apparatus, what you'd like to see is Congress to act, right? I mean, Congress could just write a law saying utilities can't do this anymore, period, full stop, and that would be nice. As we know, Congress doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Half of them are bought by (laughs) utilities. It's filibuster on and on usual. So we're left basically looking to either federal agencies that Biden can control or state governments. So what can those entities do that would have some actual bite and then some effect?
1: Yeah, a lot, thankfully. So that's what our new report is, is about. And, you know, usually the stuff that we do at EPI is just kind of like try to, expose and document all these problems. But we've been spending so long doing that. And it does <laughs> seem like people care that we, we wanted to at least take a stab at saying, here's what we can do about it. And um, there's basically three things. One is uh, having utility regulators, so this is mostly public utility commissions, simply pass rules and clarify the existing rules to close all these loopholes and just make clear that utilities cannot spend their repair money on any kind of political influence activity, and then define that activity really clearly. So, so by the way, you know, if you ask utilities right now, they would say, "Well, we don't spend any repair money on politics. Uh, we we certainly don't spend any on, spend any repair money on lobbying." But that's just sort of fun with words, like the way they define lobbying is the narrowest possible definition, and even then, I they're not actually following those rules which we can get to how you prevent that problem. But the first thing is to make those rules airtight. So define, you know, public utility commissions can define all of these different kinds of politics, lobbying, PR machines, advertising, political advertising, regulatory lobbying, where you're going to regulators and asking for stuff, just all of it, and say, you cannot use customer money for that. If you want to do it, you can do it out of your own
0: profits. Two things. One is, so any PUC can just do this now. Yes. PUC have has the regulatory authority to just do this now. My my only question is how easy is it to distinguish utility ratepayer funds from utility I don't know like investor Profits. Yeah. Profits. Like I'm sure there are all sorts of ways of muddling those.
1: There are. And that's that's what happened in the first energy case. I I won't I won't bore you all with it. But the answer is it's it's hard to distinguish. And so that's what gets into the second second
0: leg of the stool. I mean, why not just say don't do it at all with anybody's money? That would be
1: the perfect world. So that is something (laughs) that a a public utility commission couldn't do by itself, Uh, but a state legislature could. And we've seen some efforts at this. I think it's politically a bigger lift, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. There's nothing stopping a state legislature from trying to say utilities are different from other kinds of companies and we think they shouldn't spend any money on politics. And clearly define what that means. In, usually, in the wake of big scandals, there have been some legislators, state legislators, who have proposed bills like that. Like after uh, utilities in South Carolina tried to build a, spend billions of dollars on a nuclear plant and just built the world's most expensive piece of pipe art, <laughs> <laughs> there were some legislators who, who proposed bills like that. Um, I would love to see more of it. I think those those kinds of bills will run into. Challenges in the courts, given our current campaign finance rules, but they're worth trying. And, you know, I'm not a constitutional law scholar by any means, but th- but it- there is reason to believe that there I think there is legal justification to treat utilities different than other companies when it comes to campaign finance.
0: I mean, it's a it's a interesting legal question because utilities sit in this really weird ontological space, like their companies, they're kind of private companies, kind of not kind of public kind of not. Has it has it been hashed through the courts, whether they have all the same rights of, of expression as truly private companies?
1: I don't think it has. I'm going to get out over my skis pretty quickly talking about legal stuff. But one thing I will say, interestingly, just as a note that maybe will pique folks interest in the Citizens United case, the Liberal justices in their minority opinion argued that the framers did not think corporations should have kind of unfettered speech and they're different from, you know, human beings, free speech rights. And of all people, Justice Scalia's rebuttal to that, he actually said, well, when the framers said that kind of stuff, they were talking about um, state chartered monopoly corporations. And that might be true for them because, you know, at the time we had that was common then, It was you know, corporate structures were very different. 300 years ago. Mm. Um, So comments like that do sort of open the door of this tantalizing question, like, should there be legal efforts uh, to try to treat uh, monopoly utilities as sort of fundamentally different? Like you said, they are, they operate in this different space. They're not like other private free market companies. Should they be treated differently from a campaign finance perspective? And I think, if there are constitutional lawyers who are listening to Volts, I hope they will <laughs> explore that question because I, it's ripe for that.
0: But don't you just think that, like, whatever the legal merits, our Supreme Court will end up getting it and doing whatever's corporate friendliest, <laughs> regardless of the legal merits? I mean, law feels so futile these days.
1: Yeah, well, I'm certainly not optimistic.
0: But PUCs are squarely within their rights to say, don't use ratepayer money.
1: Yes, absolutely. So that's sort of why we start there is, is just because it's, it requires no systemic changes, no, no constitutional challenges. It's really simple for PUCs to say, no ratepayer money on politics.
0: And that is because by law, utilities are supposed to spend money in the, whatever the most just and reasonable. Fair the fr- and reasonable, exactly. And so this would be under that provision, basically saying it is not fair and reasonable to spend money this way.
1: That's exactly right. And then the challenge becomes, as you said, okay, well, we can say that, but how do, how can we tell which money is very fungible? How can we tell which pot of money this political activity is being funded by? And so that requires uh, basic transparency and disclosure reforms. So mm. right now, if you want to know, like, whether a utility spend ratepayer money or shareholder money on a given activity the process basically is to wait for the utility to go in for a rate increase and then there's a sort of quasi-judicial rate case and if you're if you have money and can hire a lawyer you can intervene and get status to be an intervener in that rate case and then you can ask discovery questions of the utility and try to find out how that activity was funded now to be clear, like groups do this, you know, earth justice, they do an incredible job of that around the country. Sierra Club does that. Consumer advocates in every state try to do that. They're trying to protect consumers from that, but they're totally outgunned. And some utility companies don't have rate cases for five years or longer. Alabama Power in Alabama, they haven't had a legally contested sort of open uh, rate case with public intervention since 1982. So who knows what they're spending money on? Um <laughs> So what what we need is basically the solution to this is having annual line item granular disclosures that utilities are made to file with the PUC in all of these areas. So anything that is vaguely political or even adjacent to political, PUC should be requiring them to basically submit you know, a spreadsheet every year that says what they spent, where the money came from. And then you can kind of check. So the, the first step is to make sure the rules are strong. The second step is to have these disclosures so that you can verify that companies are following the rules. And the third step is enforcement. So this is what we talked about before, so I won't dwell on it. But if you make the rules strong so the utilities know them and they can't say that they screwed up by accident, and then you have the disclosures so that members of the public or regulators can catch if they screwed up and they did screw up or they, they did break the law and they charged ratepayers for some political activity. Then there have to be consequences. Otherwise, there's no deterrent. Um, and those consequences should be severe. So, we're arguing like if a utility takes a million dollars of ratepayer money and spends it on, you know, a political trade association or some kind of politics that they're not supposed to, they should have to return that money and then be fined like at least that million dollars and probably a lot more to make the deterrent adequate. So, those are kind of the three steps
0: we've got. Better rules, better disclosure, better enforcement. Right. And is enforcement, at least what's available today that we know works, is that mostly just financial? Is that mostly just fines? Is there, Are there other potential consequences? Because, you know, like for a company like First Energy that's doing billions of dollars of business and, you know, lobbying on behalf of billion dollar nuclear plants, like there's just unfathomably large amounts of money being deployed here and i'm just trying to imagine the size of fine that would compete with <laughs> with those amounts of money for their interest in there you know what i mean uh yeah like can fines even get big enough it's a really good point well i think one answer is let's try some really
1: big fines and see how they work <laughs> yeah
0: let's give it let's give it a world <laughs> let's
1: give it a college try but i i do <laughs> i do agree with your your premise there that some corruption, some kinds of behavior are so bad enough that it is hard to imagine a dollar figure that could adequately deter it, especially when they're all counting on not getting caught. And so in that case, I do think this probably would be something that a legislature would need to do and and would be difficult for a PUC to do unilaterally. But I do think in in cases like First Energy, you know, public officials in Ohio ought to consider whether the company should be allowed to continue to operate in its current form there so that that can all be part of enforcement as well
0: what about you know what about a legislature saying you know this balance of public and private that we tried in investor-owned utilities clearly isn't working so we're just going to make you public make you into a public utility is that has anyone tossed that out there is that even on the table
1: I think so people are talking about that. I mean that there are movements of people in where I live for instance in California who's basically suggested it's a little bit different than these political issues but they've basically said that PG&E's criminality with regard to starting these devastating fires has been so bad that the only solution really is to have them be converted into a public power entity. You know there there have been similar efforts like that in different pockets of the country. There's one ongoing right now in Maine. And a lot of that, I think, is inspired by this problem. If you talk to advocates of public power, they will say that we just can't trust these investor-owned utilities to not run these political machines that threaten the integrity of our state government. And I'm very sympathetic to those views. I'm not sure if that solution will work at scale everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also worth noting, like, you know, Public power entities aren't perfect. They also require good governance and good accountability. You know, all you have to do is look at TVA. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, and they don't necessarily perform better. I always sort of caution people about that. Like the, the issues that dictate good or bad performance are not ne- don't necessarily line up with public and private. But it does seem like, at the very least, if it was a public utility, it would have less structural incentive to cheat and lie. Do you know what I mean?
1: I think that's true. I agree with that. And so, you know, I think. That option should be on the table, and in, in in places where that makes sense, you know, I'm all for people pushing for it. It's a it's a much bigger lift, obviously.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. All of this is pretty is pretty <laughs> tough.
1: It is. Although, I mean, you know, just to back up to some of these changes that would be easier for a single public utility commission to do or a single state legislature, the kind of stuff that we're outlining in this report, I don't think it would like solve every single problem when it comes to utility political machines, but something is better than nothing. And the status quo is pretty bad. So let's start trying things. Right. And these are all doable within the current system. Some of them are being explored now. So just as some bright spots, some examples, the New York state legislature recently passed a law that banned utilities from uh, charging ratepayers for any trade associations that lobby. I think that's progress. FERC has an open proceeding, so um, inspired by uh, a great legal challenge from the Center for Biological Diversity. So, yes, who's doing lawsuits? Who's doing legal challenges on this stuff? Center for Biological Diversity has an energy justice program with great lawyers that are doing some of this. So, they petitioned FERC to take a look at some of this. And FERC opened an inquiry. They got lots of comments. Everybody other than the utility said, yeah we need some accounting changes and some new rules and some better transparency to prevent utilities from charging customers for trade associations, for politics, for their sort of politically motivated charitable giving for all that stuff. Interestingly, even people who like, I don't agree with about anything agree on this, like oil companies actually as electricity customers Weighed into the FERC docket and said, "Yeah, we would prefer not to pay for their lobbying." Also, um, <laughs> so that happened, and FERC can act at any time. So you mentioned through federal agencies, uh, FERC is is meant to be independent. That FERC commissioners are appointed by the president, but that they don't act to his direction. But but FERC can do this anytime they want. The they've had this notice of inquiry proceeding. It's been responded to by all parties. They could draft a rulemaking. That makes it harder for utilities to sort of supercharge your political machine on rates. And there's some, you know, individual public utility commissions who have like disallowed some things, mm-hmm. um, who have done some aggressive disclosures. Uh, so we point out those examples in the report. People should check them out just to show like this is possible. And our hope is that that more PUCs and legislators um, start proposing these things and we'll and we'll see what comes of it.
0: You know, if you're just a listener out there and you didn't realize how bad this is, and are now uh, mad per the, you should be mad about this episode they just listened to. What can people do? I mean, is there a, is there a particular organization that's working on this, or is it just a matter of contacting your own state's PUC or writing your legislature? Is there a place to sort of centralize this work that people can go just support? Good question. Well.
1: They can learn more about it at our website. So that's energyandpolicy.org. We focus pretty heavily on this stuff. Um, In terms of groups that are taking action, I'd recommend a couple. Center for Biological Diversity, as I mentioned, they are Mm -hmm. um, doing some great legal work on this. Uh, There's a group called Solar United Neighbors who um, works with rooftop solar uh, advocates and customers. Um, But they have operations in a lot of different states and they have a national advocacy program um, and they are invested in creating some of these kinds of changes. And then, if you're not sure, like, oh, you know, if that those groups are have ways in for you where you live, the Sierra Club uh, is involved in public utility commission proceedings in most states, and they're very much invested in um, attacking utility political power. So that's another organization that folks can check out.
0: yeah, and worth saying again, as I've said so so many times over the years. PUC meetings are pretty sleepy. They're not. uh, You're not going to be standing in a long line to to get in one of those. So a little bit of noise goes a long way. Uh, You know, especially relative to a lot of other places, you could make noise. Like they don't get a lot of noise there, so they care.
1: I couldn't agree more. These (laughs) these parts of state government that are responsible for um, regulating utilities, they're not very well known. And you know, for people who want to become active, they can. Do a lot as a single person. You know there are. um, I'll give a shout out to one activist in Arizona, a woman named Stacy Champion, who pretty much working independently. She's a very skilled person, um, but she didn't have lots of backers or anything. Really helped to bring Arizona Public Service, a utility that was behaving very badly in that state, to heal over the last years just by getting lots and lots of attention and doing great organizing work and campaigning. So it is a place where people can make a difference and you know, everything's harder alone. So they just kind of need to find um, some people who are, who are willing to work with them on it.
0: Awesome. Okay. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on and and walking through this. It's, you know, it's like with so many things, like you listeners probably vaguely know that it's bad, but it's way worse than they thought. (laughs) So um, David Pomerantz, thank you for coming and sharing this with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.